0: My prayer for you this morning is that you would set your faces like flint, really hard, little, really firm, really sturdy, towards those sure promises that God has for us in the future. Uh, now Christianity believes that human history is not like an endless feedback loop where we just see events repeat themselves time and time again, and things get better or worse, and there's always kind of an equilibrium between those kinds of things. But things just kind of repeat themselves. Now, we, we believe history is actually moving towards a certain destination, a great last day when God has promised to make all things new. That is promised to be a really good day for those people who love God. For God's people, we're promised that every single senseless Seemingly senseless day between now and that great day will make sense. In fact, it's not just going to make sense, it's going to give way to more beauty than what we can imagine. Now, a scene from The Return of the King, I believe, provides an image to the way that we understand God to communicate this truth to us. Uh, There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, that trilogy. And a particular part of that, the return of the king, where he is tapping into, the author is tapping into this future hope of God rescuing his people and restoring them those immense losses that they've experienced in the sin-laden world. After the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, you'll remember that Sam, he wakes up. And he is surprised, first, that he's still alive. And and then second, that he's looking at Gandalf and, and he asks him, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Well, this is a great metaphor for the Christian eschatology or belief of end times and what we expect. We really do look to a day when everything sad in this life is not just going to stop, But it's going to be reversed in such a way that it feels like it's untrue and it didn't happen in the first place or that it makes sense or that there's something even more, not just restoration but consummation. That's what we're looking at this morning as we look at our text, this great metaphor for the Christian life. In fact, in our text this morning, God is telling His people that everything that has been sad is going to come untrue. He will undo the destruction and the devastation all around them, all of the events of being taken to captivity by Assyria and Babylon and others, all of the losses, they are going to be undone. It's going to be a beautiful day. We're back in the suffering servant section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55. You'll remember last week we looked at that second servant song that we find in Isaiah. It was there that the servant himself declared that despite initial appearances, the Lord would vindicate his servant, bringing about all the covenant promises made to Abraham, Israel, and David through this servant. The servant declared promise after promise. Before in verse 13, right before our text, calling all of creation to join in singing to Yahweh concerning the great comfort that he has given his people. He has shown comfort and compassion to the afflicted. It is so great a day that He says everybody that has ears and even the rocks themselves should cry out to the glory of God. Now that's not the response that God's... I think that's the response that God's people ought to have if they see everything sad coming untrue. But Zion, you'll notice that they responded to the ruined desolated city that they return to, declaring that the Lord, he doesn't see them, and he has forgotten them in verse 14. Now, what a contrast. This faithful, trusting servant says, let's sing about the fulfillment of the promises of God. And then verse 14 today that we begin with, you find this, the, the people of God actually responding, I feel like God's forgotten us. And forsaken us, that they don't trust the promises of God, the voice of God. It's as though they haven't heard what the servant has just said. They're not joining in on the song. Now, who is Zion that is speaking here? Well, Zion is, of course, the name of that ancient fortress and temple mount in Jerusalem that King David in Second Samuel, takes back from the Jebusites. But here it speaks, I believe, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city of the people of God. And it's hard to miss the stark contrast between the servant who is calling everyone to confidently sing over the glory of God and verse 13, followed here in verse 14 by this grumbling complaint of God's people. And here's what I want you to see. The failure of all of Israel to trust God in Isaiah 49, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, to, to 53, is going to be interrupted by the third servant song, where the servant himself speaks out about his confidence in God. So there's a back and forth kind of going on here that we're going to notice. Well, notice here this morning, the servant hears God's comfort and believes while Zion is grumbling and complaining over all the desolation that they see all around them. Here's our big idea. If you take notes, you can go ahead and write this down. Our big idea is this, that God will vindicate his servant, the righteous suffer on the last day. He's going to be vindicated. He's going to be shown to be right for his faith in God, his confidence in him. We see this in a number of ways, but let's just move through the text. Uh, First, notice that God has not forgotten his children or his bride, Zion, in verses 15 to 18. He has not forgotten them. Now, Zion, you'll remember, he just complained in verse 14. God has forgotten us. He has forsaken us. But notice that God responds with a kind of metaphor that is intended to help them understand that that's not true. Uh, So if you look with me again at verse 15 in Isaiah 49, here's what he says. He asks, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Now, when I go to visit my mom, now in Alabama, she lights up like it's Christmas, like almost every time. It's a a great thing to have a mom that, that greets you and welcomes you and loves you and thinks you're great and yet tells all the embarrassing stories about you that you would think would make people think you're not so great. She's never forgotten my name. Now, that could happen someday. But I've never shown up and she said, hey, I, who are you again? Never happened. Now, that, that can happen. In fact, God says not all families are perfect. Sometimes moms, in verse 15, can forget their children. He says, what an unlikely thing. It's an abnormal thing weird strange thing but catch this that thing he says that thing will never happen with me and my children Israel a mom might forget her human child but I is is God the God who created you the Redeemer who claimed you I will never forget you and notice this is something more than God just saying I have not forgotten you yet. He says, yet I will not forget you. He's saying, it's not just that I haven't forgotten you. You think I've forgotten right now because of how bad things look. But I'm promising you, I, I will not forget you. You are firmly in my mind and on my heart. This is a promise that God will not in the future forget Zion. And in verse 16, he follows it up with another analogy for his remembrance of his people. Notice what he says. He says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God told his people to bind his commandments on their hands in Deuteronomy 6, eight. Now, why did he say that? It's because he did not want them to forget law. He did not want to forget what obedience to God looks like. It's a a helpful thing to wear a a bracelet or something around your hand so that you're always reminded, oh yeah, like this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to forget this thing. Uh, We have uh, things like wedding rings that remind us, oh, I, I almost forgot I'm married. I need to be reminded of that, right? And if I forget, others won't. So You want to make sure that you put things on your hands to help you remember. But notice here, God has not just bound something around his hand. That's not what the language says. This word that it says engraved is actually a word for cut. He literally cuts a picture of the walls of Zion. Now, this is a metaphor, but this is what he's saying. I cut it into the flesh of my palms with them open wide as a constant reminder that I have not, will not forget my people. And then in verses 17 to 18 speak of the future that God still has planned for them. He he gives this image of builders showing back up to Zion to rebuild what has been lost. And, And they show up right on the heels of their enemies who are running from them. And God promises on His life in verse 18 that on that day His people will be adorned, did you catch that? With the fulfillment of God's promises as a wife that's been decked out for her wedding day. And you know that there's nothing like the beauty of your bride on the wedding day. When, she, when everything that she can do to look beautiful as a presentation and an image and a picture of the future bride of Christ, she, she, she does all of that. And here we shall be the fulfillment of what every wedding looks forward to the people of God adorned before their God for them. I don't know where you are today, but do you feel forgotten? by God are forsaken. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I, I, I feel, I know what the Bible says, like I'm tattooed on his hands or whatever, but, but I don't feel like that's true today. Maybe you feel that God has forgotten you because you're single and you're desperately lonely. And when you feel lonely without other human relationships, sometimes it's easy to feel distance from God. Or or maybe you're sick and you wonder why uh, other people who are worse sinners than you are healthy and you're thinking like, what have I done? Why has God not seen to come and to help me? Or perhaps you feel like you have a really forgettable job or some forgettable task that you were doing again and again. And you're thinking, I don't know if God notices or anyone else. I just feel unseen and forgotten. Maybe you lost your mom or your husband to a divorce or death and you feel like no one on earth sees you. And maybe that's impacted your view of heaven. I think if we're honest, it's easy for us to feel like no one sees us or remembers us. And there are a few things that make us feel as forgotten and unseen by God and others as suffering and rejection by others. When you feel rejected you long to be affirmed, to be comforted. And, and let me just say this, I don't know where you're at. Either you've been forgotten, or I'm just helping you get ready to feel forgotten later. But this morning, if you were a child of God, you have put your faith in Christ. You are a top, an adopted son and daughter of your Creator and Redeemer. You've been adopted by faith into Christ, and you have His family. Here's the good news. God will never forget you. So when your heart is telling you that you've been forgotten by God, or others are despising you and telling you that you've been forgotten by God, or that you're like you know, irretrievable freight, we hear the voice of God saying, I will never forget you. That's such good news. He will never forget His Christ covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus who shows the evidence of God's not forgiving us and His pierced hands for us at the cross. He does not forget us. And He does not forget the future promises that He has for you. This is the basement, not the ceiling. The best is yet to come. But notice the confusing problem in verses 18, the the second half, to verse 21. When this scene unfolds, and the children come back, and the promises are fulfilled, more kids show up in Zion than those who left. And it gets really confusing. So after the mother of sons becomes a bride, notice in verse 19 that the Zion's walls, they're not wide enough for all of the sons to return. And so the Lord says this in verses 19 to 20. He says, Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. See, the Lord is pointing to a a future day, here again, when He's going to deliver the exiled sons of Zion. But when He delivers them, more kids show up than left, and there's not enough room for them all in Zion. I mean, this looks something like, I think, more than restoration. Right? It's not just you lost this many, this many come back. It is, there are more, there are so many more that we don't have room, and we've got to think about how to expand this place. This phrase, the children of your bereavement in verse 20, is really just creating this picture of a reversal of childlessness due to whatever factors, or barrenness. Now in the Old Testament, with the people of God, Israel, you'll remember in Deuteronomy that He tells his people, if if you break my covenant with you, if you're disobedient, then there are going to be curses. And a couple of curses that he outlines is, you'll experience a barrenness of the land and a barrenness of the womb. And so when you see a a kind of barrenness amongst the people of God, it's usually as a consequence of their sin against God. This is for Israel. And so here we find something glorious. When he says that this barren mom is all of a sudden going to have not just children, but more children than she had before. It is a reverse of the curse. The image I get in my mind is you have this mom who is sad because she has lost all of her children, and she's sort of eating her dinner alone in front of a TV set with a a TV tray, eating sort of a microwavable meal, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, she's sitting before a grand feast table with all of these kids. And they keep on coming in for the holidays. And everybody's happy and the music starts. And she's like, what are we going to do? And all the kids are like, there's not a r- enough room for us all, mom. you got to get a bigger house. What a change. And then in verse 21, Zion is asking in their very hearts, their inner being. They're saying this, I was bereaved. And now I've got a lot more kids than I started with. And don't miss this. God promises not only to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, as the prophet Joel says, here he is promising a future blessing that only meets their losses. Right? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I have lost so much. It's taken a knock on my faith. Because at the end of the day, I really struggle to believe those future promises of God. That he can really come and and meet me and all of the losses that I've had. Can He really make it right again? Well, this is the beauty of this text. Part of it. It's that He promises a a future blessing that not only meets their losses, it exceeds them. It exceeds them. It goes beyond what they can imagine. Something happens to the world such that everything sad is going to come untrue. Now Christian, I, I want you to know that this promise is for you if you are in Christ. It's not for the world around you, for those outside of Christ. It is offered to those outside of Christ, but it is not for those outside of Christ. You'll remember that Jesus promised in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who has lost much, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, for Jesus, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's not just that he will make good on the losses. He says it will be repaid a hundred times. I don't know about you, but if I could find that investment financially, I would put my money in today, right? Spiritually, this is super true. Israel blamed God for forgetting them. Why? It's because of their suffering exile. I mean, you can imagine how that would cause like doubt and hurt and pain. And you can imagine that in that exile as they are imprisoned in Babylon and trying to get comfortable there that they think man there is no way that we can bring that back and undo what has been done I don't know if there's any way that God can and maybe that's your heart today maybe you're thinking God can't make right the wrongs that you've experienced in this life God can't undo the consequences of your sins in the future you can't imagine that God can actually make what is wrong right again but don't miss this. I believe what here in another text God is saying to His people is that if that's your problem thinking that God can't do equal to what He's done, your bar is too low. Your bar is too low. God will not only undo every loss that you weep over, every loss is actually a down payment on a promise that God's going to pay you back 100 times on the last day. And doesn't that make you excited about the last day? See, the eyes of faith say God can do more than we think or imagine. But notice verses 22 to 26. It begins to tell us where these kids are coming from. The nations. The nations will carry Israel's children to Zion. Verses 22 to 26. If you look at verse 22, you you see the image begin. He says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signals to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons and their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Now, this image is utterly stupefying. All of history races towards a day when the covenant God of Israel will raise His hand and, and pull up His banner. And the peoples of the nations, the once rebellious peoples of the earth, are going to come running to Zion, and they are giving the exiled Israelites piggyback rides to get there. Do you see that? They are carrying these sons of Israel back to them. Israel that was serving the nations, it's scattered. They are now gathering with the help of the nations who are coming simply because of the call of God. On that day, we're told that all will see the power of God in verse 23, when he simply gives this signal, and foreign kings, did you catch this? They will become humble servants of the children of Zion. And foreign queens will become their nursing mothers, bowing before them and licking the very dust from their feet. An image of being subservient, but also an image of one who sees the glory of another. On this day, everything changes. God's people suffer and feel feel powerless when they hear this. I mean, can you imagine how difficult it would be to be in exile in Babylon? To imagine that your captors would one day be humbled before you? I wonder if Daniel was thinking about that in the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thinking about that as they were going into the fire. One day... God's people will reign with Him. The kings and the queens that once ruled over them now bow before them as a result of this triumph of God's grace. And there's a voice that cries out asking if God can really, in this moment, notice in verse 24, a, a voice is crying out. And, and I think an illustration would be, it's almost like it's crying out and asking, is it possible to unscramble, scramble eggs? Here's what I mean. Just read the text and I'll explain. He says this. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? If you read and you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that there's a little note next to tyrant. And it says it could also be something like the righteous one or righteous man. I think that what this question is actually saying, it's not merely one about the power of the enemy here, but a more nuanced question about the legal right that a righteous captor has to his plunder. If there's been a war and they have righteously taken plunder, then it is his. There's been a, an exchange of ownership. And so how can God rightly undo what has been done? A lot of, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. So is it to, does it take a, an act of unrighteousness to undo what's been done? Uh, not to say, does God have the power to do it? Is it possible for God to save his people from this? righteous capture and the answer of course is that god is able he is able in strength and power he is able in righteousness to save them in a perfectly just way he, he promises to come here as their kinsman redeemer taking on their cause as his own contending with those who can, contend against them and, and he promises mother zion that he would save her children God also provides a grim picture that you might have noticed in verse 26 about the future of those who refuse Him. So there's this picture that it begins with, with all the nations coming. But there are some who do not come, who do not bow the knee willingly. And in verse 26, God says, this is their future. I will make them eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Now, this seems harsh to us, but... This picture makes a lot of sense in the ancient Near East. When a nation would have laid siege to a city in ancient times, hunger would sometimes lead to cannibalism. See, God's justice can be seen in that seeking to live outside of obedience to your Creator and Redeemer. It's self-destructive. It's self-harm. Not to worship God and honor Him and thank Him as God. When we don't do that, it is. Not better for us, that's what our heart might say, that's what the lie of hell says. But the reality is that when we're not living for God as God made us to live and what He has called us to be as His people, it is always self-destructive for us. So here in this text, we really see two options of how to live. One is promoted and one is said to be dangerous. Uh, The first is to live a life of self-sacrifice and the other is one of self-destruction. So either you're in the, I'm living... For self-sacrifice camp where I'm living for self-destruction camp. See, Self-sacrifice looks like trusting God for your eternal joy with the decisions that you make every day. Am I, am I living, putting God's will, trusting His will for my life and my joy in life with Him above my own sinful desires, my own wants? Or am I living for what I can get out of this life in my way? Those are sort of the two options. Christian, Christ gave Himself up so that we may feast on Christ. When we gather and take communion, it's a constant reminder that Jesus sacrificed His own body and blood for us so that we might live. We don't have to be cannibals eating one another anymore because we have Christ. And so when we gather together around the table, we are reminded that the only thing that satisfies It is not our own selfish desires, living for our own selfish cravings. What we ultimately were made for was to feast on Jesus and Him alone. By faith, we fulfill this. You know, a good sign as to whether or not we are really feasting on Christ sufficiently to meet the day's troubles is whether or not we are cannibalizing one another. Um, Y'all know that our family is in the process of moving. It's full of lots of anxiety and pressure and pain. And uh, there was a day the other day that we were up from like you know, before the sun came up till like way after it went down, and we were all exhausted. And uh, I said to somebody, you know, today's been a day where God's been sanctifying me and has not looked very pretty. Now that was a nice way of me saying, you know, I think I sinned a lot today, like grumpy, frustrated, and and it's in that moment that you realize, man, I just need to sit and be with Jesus for a little bit. I need to pray. I need to confess my sins. I need to seek the scriptures and hear God's voice. I need to calm down and check how I'm treating others. So if you find yourself chewing on somebody, you might need to start chewing on Jesus a little bit more. Moving on. Fourth, God did not forget Israel did not respond. God did not forget Israel did not respond. In verses 51 to 3, despite God's litany of stupefying promises depicting a future triumph of grace that would reverse the curse, Israel does not listen. Notice in verse 1, the Lord speaks again saying, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Now, you, you see the problem here, right? They start off saying, God has forgotten and forsaken us. That's the problem. The problem's God. We're not being treated rightly. The problem is that they actually have forgotten something, right? They didn't just forget God, they forgot themselves and what they had done. Now, the image here is that of divorce and slavery. Marriage is a common metaphor for the covenant between Christ and his people, or God and his people. And one could also sell someone into slavery to resolve a debt, even themselves for a season. But notice that God says, Behold, or look, here in verse 1. He's asking them to see. A People that are hard of seeing, obviously hard of hearing, he tells them to look yet one more time. And he says, You were sold for your iniquity and divorced for your transgressions. Now, these are two related things, but different. We've talked about it before. Iniquity speaks of a kind of inclination of heart that is bent towards sin. Like, love sin, desire sin. It's an orientation towards sin. Transgression is a little more specific. It talks about willful disobedience of God's known law. So, here we find that they are doing both of it. Like, both of them describe them. And, and part of the reason that they are in the place that they're in that they are in exile is not just because God has forgotten them; it is because they have sinned against their God. It is because they loved sin more than they loved God. That's what landed them in the place that they're in. Don't miss this. Their problem is not that God forgot or forsook them, but that they loved sin and will, willfully broke their marriage vows with Him. You know, sometimes we don't see sin as being like a really big deal, especially when we 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 do those little sins, right? Um, but the way that he describes it is breaking marriage vows. A very big thing. A very significant thing when we live in rebellion and breaking the marriage vows that we have with God. We'll see in verse 2 that God comes calling. He comes calling for His people. And and notice what he says in verse 2. He repeats this this kind of phrase. He asks, was there no man when I came calling? Was there no one to answer. Now, don't miss this. God is highlighting that not even one of the children of Zion trusted in the mighty hand of God to save them. That's the point. Not even one. He says, Not even one. Is there anyone? And that's why the Lord asks Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Is that how you see me now this is a a stark contrast to the image that we began with where god promised one day to raise his hand and to lift up his banner and call the nations to come giving them piggyback rides back to zion and yet here there is no one in zion that believes that god has the power to deliver them as he has promised no one is trusting in god's promises God can't find one righteous man to trust Him. Don't don't miss this. This is bad news for Israel. But it's not just bad news for Israel a long time ago. This is part of the human plight today. Apart from God, there is no one that seeks after Him. Every one of us are sinners by nature and by choice. We love sin left to ourselves with with a, a kind of sense that if we don't have God do a miracle on us, are, are you with me? If God does not perform a miracle, a resurrection-like spiritual miracle, we will not love God. We'll love sin. And that's why Romans 3 looks down. Paul says, God looks down from heaven. You remember this from Psalms. All have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. No one seeks after God. That is god's declaration about the nature of where we are at as humanity and this can be seen in evidence by the fact that the people israel who had all of the promises who were inherited of the promises through abraham and moses and david are here in this moment god is looking at them and everything looks hopeless because not even one of them trusts in the promises of god And they are the hope of the nations. It's through them that God promises that he will restore all things. So if no one amongst them believes, what hope is there? I mean, can we just humbly admit the grace of God is amazing because we know that we are sinners and are utterly, desperately in need of his grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. None of us deserve a reverse of the curse. None of us have the passcode to earn it. None of us are ready to hear God's word if we don't recognize that deep problem. We can't save ourselves. But not only that, we don't even want to apart from an act of grace of God. But catch this notice, there is a voice. A voice. It's silent. No one calls out. But then, in verse 4, there is a voice. There is one. A voice of trust in God appears out of nowhere in in verses 4-11. to He doesn't even tell you who He is until verse 10. Now this is where the third servant song of Isaiah begins. And I take it that he's trusting God in the present sufferings of this life by looking to the future promises. I believe that what he is talking about throughout is a future-oriented kind of confidence that invades the present of what he's doing. I mean, here again, we find a kind of autobiography of this ser- servant in verses 4 to 9. But his identity, it's not going to show up until verse 10. It's, it's here, when God called out the nation of Israel and not anyone responded, that we find the servant speaking up. And notice first, the righteous sufferer trusts God for future vindication. We see that here. This righteous sufferer trusts God for future vindication. Did you see how different this servant looks from the nation of Israel when Holly read earlier? He's given a prophetic tongue in verse 4. He says, It is given to me that I may sustain with a word him who is weary. Servant of the weary. Not a servant of the strong, but of the weary. And That word for sustain here is, is difficult in the original. But it seems to mean something like someone who bends down to console the weary with a word. He is stooping to them is the way that I take it. Yet he's also here pictured as like the best disciple ever. Do you see this? He's one who is given a word and has a prophetic calling above others as we have seen. But here, it's morning by morning that he awakens... And He awakens my ear. The Lord awakens his, his, his heart as those who are taught. He awakens His ear to His heart as those who are taught. He is morning by morning awakening and listening closely to the Word of His Father. That's the posture of a disciple. You want to be a disciple? The way to be a disciple is not really to find... Uh, some good canned discipleship formula. Uh, The best way to be a disciple is to look to God's Word and see who Jesus is and then try to follow His example and submit to Him all of the desires of your life. And here, that's what this servant is doing. He's submitting all of himself to God morning after morning. That's the posture. In Isaiah 6-9, it's interesting. God called Isaiah to prophesy to a people who would hear but not understand and see but not perceive. This servant not only speaks with unique authority as a greater prophet, but he also listens and hears and understands as the true Israel. He is the one who responds rightly to God. He is also the obedient servant in verse 5. Did you see that? He says, I I was not rebellious when God opened my ear. Now, why would he be rebellious to what he heard? What would be... The startling claim that I was obedient and and I wasn't rebellious. Well, verse 6, I think, gives us a picture of the context. He was called to suffer. He wasn't just called to come in and call the nations and bam, they're there. He would suffer to bring the nations in. He was, notice, struck on the back and his beard was pulled out. I've never had my beard pulled out. That sounds horrible. I think it's also some kind of image of shame in this context. Notice, he didn't hide his face from the disgrace of man. He didn't flinch from getting spit upon. This servant understood that hearing God and obeying His voice would not be easy. It would not be comfortable. It would be hard. The present circumstances of this servant look so startlingly different than the glorious future that we started with. Did you see that? God got started with the glorious future that awaits, and then He backed into, and here's the present reality of your suffering. And He says those two things go hand in hand. They are not in opposition with one another. They don't contradict one another. This is the way. This is the way of the servant. He will suffer, and then He will see glory. The bright future of Isaiah 49 will require faithfulness amid suffering. Did you catch how he held up under the suffering of disgrace and the abuse of others? I think verse 7 is really critical to understanding how this servant perseveres through suffering as a righteous man. I don't know about you, but I I need all the training I can get on that. And so here's what he says. Verse 7, how to hold up under persecution. He says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, I understand the servant here to say, the Lord God will help me. I think that throughout, this is future oriented. You'll notice, in fact, that later he says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. I think this is parallelism. I think it's it's showing a kind of future that he is looking to. He trusts God's future promises amidst those present sufferings. In the same way, you'll notice in the second half of the verse, he says he sets his face like flint that's immovable toward the promise of God. With full confidence, I shall not be put to shame. See, this servant, he here looks a lot like a new and better Adam who draws near to God when he calls. He's not running and hiding in shame. He he feels uh, like he can come before God and pursue God. He looks to run towards Him. So let me just ask you, when life gets hard, do you forget the great and sure promises of God and then begin to think that God has forgotten you? That's not what the servant does. He's reminded in those moments of difficulty of the future promises and he trusts them. He trusts the voice of God more than he trusts his own. Verse 8 envisions another thing. It's a future court scene and the servant does not fear the outcome. Though he's seen as guilty and despised on earth in, in all of these situations, notice, he is not fearful because he says, he who vindicates me is near who will contend with me. That's to say, who will condemn me in the end? On the last day. When we come to the final court, when we get the final decision, that day doesn't come until the last day. There are a lot of bad decisions from today until the last day. But on the last day, who is going to vindicate me? It's his God who is near to him. God has not forsaken him. It's not that God can't see him because he's so far away. God is near and he does not forget his servant. He's confident against his enemies today because he trusts that God will vindicate him on the last day. He has an iron sort of faced perspective and direction looking towards what is to come and notice that despite all of the external sufferings and dangers around him he sees a really long future for himself while those who condemn him as guilty he says all of them those people who before that day were condemning him are really like a garment that the moth will eat up and that will pass away Now, All of us can relate to that, right? Especially if you're a guy. I've got t-shirts that are like 10 years old that just randomly disappear, and I don't even notice it. It's usually because I have a wife who gets rid of t-shirts that have holes in armpits and those sorts of things. Things that I think provide ventilation, but she's like, "Just, you don't need that anymore, and she throws it away, and it just disappears. How strong some of the verdicts. And those who make the verdicts today seem how powerful they seem, and one day they will disappear and they will vanish, and they will give way to this eternal servant. The picture here is that those in strong opposition against the righteous suffer today will not make it very long the la- to the last day. See, God preserves His servant, and this servant perseveres, knowing that God will vindicate the righteous sufferer. That drives him. That gives him hope here. God will vindicate me. I trust God, surely for that. This might not make sense to everybody, but I have a God who makes sense of everything. Notice second, the servant invites all to walk by his light in verses 10 to 11. We need to fast forward a little bit, but notice in verse 10 that the one who fears the Lord is also the one who obeys the voice of his servant. So now the the servant invites one who walks in darkness and has no light, to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's a a picture of those who are going through really difficult times. There is no uh, sort of human light. There is no light that they see. And it's in those moments of darkness that he reaches out and says, I want you to trust God when it doesn't make sense. The world is dark. Trust God. We may not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And this servant is inviting others to this way of life. It's, it's kind of like, I think this text kind of like uh, reminded me of The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen that show on Disney, but The Mandalorian is uh, basically uh, this warrior who represents a Mandalorian people, and they have this kind of code or way of life that they live by. I'm not going to get all into it, but one of them is simply, you can't ever take off your helmet. I don't know how you drink Coke with like a helmet on, but they figure it out. The point is, though, that throughout the, the show, he'll say periodically, this is the way. And when he says this is the way, he's saying this is what it means to be Mandalorian, like the essential set of things. I think the same thing is being said here of the servant and those who follow his way of life. This is the way means that if you follow the way of the servant, you're you're going to suffer. He suffered, you'll suffer. But it also means when he says this is the way and the promises that await us are far more than what you can even imagine or anticipate. This is the way. So there's a whole lot going on and this is the way, right? And here we find the same thing in this text. He says, if you are going to follow the way of the servant, the future is bright, but the road there is rough. All of those who will follow the servant will follow this way. Well, let me close really quickly with just a a few applications first. Christians. I just want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus is the true servant of God and the only true righteous sufferer. Before we talk about following the example of the righteous sufferer, we need to understand the unique meaning of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could die and be raised from the dead in obedience to the Father so that you and me can receive the Holy Spirit by faith and actually make good on this call to follow in His footsteps. We are a people of God who can follow Jesus because of what Christ has done for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, He made Him to be no sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. He's a reason that all of the promises of God for those in Christ are yes and amen. All of them. All of God's promises for us, they are confirmed in Christ. So the sufferings of this life cause you to forget the promises of God for you. And now you think that God has forgotten you. Did you forget God or did He forget you? God does not forget His children ever or the promises for them. Second, Christian, Christ's righteousness is the only model of life that leads to a reversal of sorrows. So don't give up on doing good. Uh, Galatians 6.9 says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Part of being a Christian means that we don't give up. We continue to follow Christ. We persevere in our faith. It doesn't mean it's a straight line. We're always perfect. We're always, you know, better and better. It means that like ups and downs, but over the trajectory of life, we see change for the good in our obedience to Christ. If you don't see that in your life, then talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Ask them to pray for you. Uh, Read the scriptures together. Ask that God would show more and more obedience in your life. Third, as a church, let's not be cannibals. Let's not be cannibals. Let's come early. Let's show up often and ready to encourage one another rather than devouring one another. When we encourage one another and lift one another up, what we are doing is we are testifying that we have feasted well on Christ. It makes us an encouraging people because we have been encouraged by Christ Himself. And finally, if you're a non-Christian, you're here this morning, the difference between the hope of future and despair is, in this text, a life that is determined by whether you are following God's servant for hope or not. So have you trusted Jesus who died to make guilty people innocent and save them for their sins? Do you feel forgotten, unseen, and hopeless about the future right now, and you are far from Christ? I just want to encourage you. You can come to Christ today who has a word for weary souls just like you. He's had it for us. He has it for you, and it's this. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take on me my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus carried the weight of the world for you at the cross so that you could come to Him. Don't leave without doing that today.